yeah, look, I think the craft is is absolutely capable of achieving 250 kilometres an hour. I won't be satisfied if we only just break the record. Or that's not that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to challenge myself, and I'm here to challenge uh, the rest of the guys around me and, and the team and the craft to um, to push to levels that are um, you know have never been done before. I want to be uh, a grey old man uh, in my 80s or 90s, hopefully, and, and still have that record intact. Um, it's very uncomfortable, it's very hot, and it's very uh, shaky and vibrating. So it's um, it definitely, from the outside, it looks quite smooth, but inside it's really, really rough. Um, it's very noisy inside is probably the, the one that would probably shock most people. It's like being on the inside of a, of a drum. Uh, it can be extremely obsessive and I have probably been, you know, for the last 18 months or, or more really since the last the America's Cup in March um, last year. I think I've probably been obsessed 100% with, with with this project, and I and I am 100% obsessed with it now. Probably 110% obsessed with it, and that's how I operate. I, I if I get my head into something, I I can't let up. number 202.9 might not mean a lot to most, but is a figure Glenn Ashby has become obsessed about. The two-time America's Cup winner is now leading a group from Emirates Team New Zealand, trying to break the wind-powered land speed record. They need to go faster than 202.9 kilometres an hour on the salt flats of Lake Gairdner in South Australia to do it. Glenn joins us for this episode of Broadreach Radio to talk about why he and Emirates Team New Zealand are chasing this record what they need to do to break it, and just how fast he thinks they can go. He also talks about what it's like to sail the craft the team have built, what tricks they've taken from motor racing, and just how much he can see when he's strapped into the cockpit. Glenn talks passionately about this quest and provides a fascinating insight into the project from its inception to the point they are now. The team have had plenty of setbacks over the last few weeks, mostly due to weather, but momentum is building towards an official record attempt and their quest to see how fast he can go. It was great fun chatting to Glenn, so I think you'll enjoy this one. Well, joining us on the show today is Glenn Ashbury from Emirates Team New Zealand. Welcome. G'day, Michael. How are you going? I'm good. Actually, in your case, it's welcome back because regular listeners might remember you joined us in the early days of Broadreach Radio, uh, episode five, if memory serves me right, and which was one of our most popular podcasts. But uh, today, the topic is quite a bit different because for the past few weeks, you've been based in Australia as you gear up for an attempt to break the wind-powered land speed record, which presently sits at 202.9 kilometres an hour. So first things first, how are things shaping up for the record attempt? Yeah, look, Michael, it's it's going really, really well. It's um, you know, there's a a huge amount of uh, effort that sort of goes into the the project 
before you even you know get the craft into the containers and cro- across to Australia. So there's just sort of a thousand little components and pieces of the puzzle that need to sort of come together, um, you know, for that package to sort of end up being complete. And where we are at the moment after sort of, you know, having done all the, the testing and the build and the design and everything looking back, you know, we are actually at the lake now and are, are in a position to, um, you know, do some testing and hopefully have a, a crack at that record over the next few weeks or so. When do you kind of expect to have a, a good attempt at that record? Yeah, look, it's a it's a great question. I mean, it's a, Mother Nature obviously plays a huge part in in when that time is right. And as we sit here right now, we had about uh, six millimeters of rain overnight, which was a real shame. Um, you know, with another big rain band coming through uh, Australia, and um, we didn't get a lot here. A lot of other places got a whole lot more, but. Just today, we were hoping to run this afternoon um, to do some testing, and we'll probably um, be too wet to do that. But we have had some great surface, and hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll get some opportunities. It's a, a lot of things have got to come together, not only the wind, but the surface as well for us to uh, you know, hopefully get fast enough to have a go at that uh, record that Richard Jenkins set right back in 2009. So is there a window, you know, like a date where you you need to be done? You, you need to pack things up and and have have either achieve the record or not look i've sort of put a a rough date of mid-december um on our date where we'd sort of pack everything up if we if we didn't um you know break the record before that um it really gets too hot um and very very dry um after that and you know we will have been here for about three months or so um if that's the case but we're hoping that you know october and november are generally the windiest months um, in in the southern part of Australia. So we're hoping that we'll get an opportunity, and if we get the surface and, and we get um, you know some really really good breeze come through, that you know I think the craft's in in good enough shape that um, you know it can do the job, and hopefully I am too. So you've chosen uh, what is it, Lake Gairdner in South Australia? Why that venue? Yeah, look, Lake Gairdner is a um, a, a huge um salt lake basically it's you know between a thousand million years old and 1600 million years old it's um it's just a a really really ancient landscape and it was once an inland sea so all the sort of leftover minerals and salt that have sort of um been you know have settled over that period of time have created this massive big surface the lake itself is actually about 168 kilometers long and about 50 kilometres wide, sort of in the main part of it. We're only using a very, very, very small section of it, about 17 kilometres by about 8 kilometres wide to do our uh, our runs. And the salt there is up to 1.2 metres thick and has taken millions of years to sort of um, get to that point. So this, the reason for Lake Gairdner was the fact that it is just a, a very big, vast expanse of space and, and we need about seven kilometres to go from a standing start to get to our maximum speed of hopefully close to 250 kilometres an hour. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, we're a big heavy craft compared to what Richard was. Um, he was quite a lot lighter than us. So what weight we've discovered is something that um, helps with grip and ultimately helps with your top end performance. But to get that top end performance, we need the space to build the speed because we are heavier. So it's, um, you know, we need a lot of runway to get going and um, a lot of runway to slow down as well, um, as we're discovering. So it's, um, you know, it's got to be, 
you've got to be very accurate with your uh, positioning and um, hopefully get the, enough space to do what you need to do. Is it the same place that the Mad Max movies were filmed? Um, there has been lots of uh, filming done out here. Um, I think they have done some filming here previously for Mad Max and a lot of other movies and, and TV commercials are, uh, have been filmed out this way over the, over the years because it is such a, a uniquely special place. You go from red dirt straight into you know absolute bright white salt and it's um, really, really quite cinematography. Uh, you know the cinematography side of things is is very um, is very special. You know the guys here that are doing the the cinematography side of things are um, you know are, are just blown away with you know how how well things sort of pop up out of the salt. So it's um it's a special place and it's um you know holds great significance for the Gawler Rangers, uh, Aboriginal people, um, and also um, you know the locals of the area that have have been here for a long long time. It's um you know it's it's been here for millions of years so it's been here for a hell of a lot longer than we have and it's a great privilege to be able to have the opportunity to uh to come and and use this surface so it's um yeah we're very very lucky yeah in terms of the cinematography you know some of the the uh, videos that you guys have been putting together it's certainly been pretty spectacular you know it looks quite desolate with a sea of white sort of miles around uh, do you constantly feel salty and does salt kind of infiltrate all the gear and equipment? Absolutely, 100%. It gets absolutely everywhere. We are often, you know, covered in in white salt, certainly in the in the setup and the pack up, you know, in the early days, um, you know, everyone was just absolutely caked. And the first few runs we did when we didn't have the craft sort of fully sealed up, um, you know, when we did our initial testing runs, you know, salt just went, absolutely in places you would never think would it would get it got into so the servicing and the maintenance side of things of not only the craft but the um you know the, the toyota vehicles that we've got you know it's a it's a huge program of of pre-washing certainly with the vehicles we pre-wash the vehicles um to get the the red dust off before we enter the lake uh and then when we come in off the lake you know we spend basically an hour um on each vehicle with two people um, you know, cleaning the vehicles as we come off the salt because it's um, it's about six or seven times more corrosive than, than normal salt water. So it, uh, the cleaning program and the maintenance program is a is a huge part of what we're doing. And obviously nobody really gets to see that side of it. You just get to see the shiny videos <laughs> at the end, like most other sports. Um, no one gets to see what goes on behind the scenes as much. But um, it is a massive, massive effort. And um, But, you know, you've got to pay your tax and to, to run on a beautiful open wide surface it's been prepared for you over millions of years you know you, you've got to pay your uh, got to pay your tax at some point and that's what we do what we're doing <laughs> sounds fun i mean how many people are in your team over there yeah look we're we've been sort of fluctuating a little bit actually we've we've sort of had about 12 over here um sort of leading up to the ceremony side of things and the initial setup um, side of things with um sean regan and the, the the boys from the team have come over and and sort of Help me with the setup and getting sorted. Um, Sean's gone back to New Zealand now to keep working on the uh, the, the, the forty program with the guys. Um, we've got a, a good squad here at the moment. We're about seven or eight of us here at the moment, and we'll probably be running around that sort of six to eight um, personnel for for the next sort of testing phase, and then we'll probably ramp up again, um, probably close to sort of twelve or even um, thirteen or fourteen when we sort of get closer to doing some record runs with. Um, the media and the film guys included in that so it's um yeah it's a it's a decent squad um a lot less obviously than what we 
we use with uh, the America's Cup side of things, but it's um you know it's a very uh, bespoke, unique project, and it's um you know something that we really want to sort of try and do together as a group, and it reflects well, I think, not only on Emirates Team New Zealand and and the guys and girls involved there, but um you know in, on New Zealand as a whole, you know it's um certainly showcasing what special talent you know we do have. And, um, you know, for the rest of the world to see New Zealand on the map, um, even though we are running over here in my backyard in, in, in Australia, it's, um, you know, to, to put New Zealand on the map is, um, you know, is pretty special. So hopefully we can get the job done. You mentioned the fact that it rained last night. You've got more rain forecast. Um, you know, you've had other delays, I think, in there. You know, how frustrating has it been to have delays over the past few weeks because I think the original plan was to go sort of over July August is that right? Yeah look the, the original plan was July August um, simply for the fact that it sort of slotted into the um, the program um, with the AC40s it sort of gave it was a little gap there where we could get um, you know get some support across it fitted in nicely with the schedule. Um, July August is not the windiest time of the year although there can be some really good wind coming through but with the little delays that we have had, we've had to sort of push the program out a little bit, which has sort of meant that, um, you know, it hasn't sort of fitted perfectly with, uh, you know, with the program in New Zealand. But what we do have is a, is a massively great depth of talent, you know, right across the team. So we can sort of, um, you know, still get, you know, jobs done very, very well with with the people that we do have. There's a lot of sort of skills that cross over, a lot of people that can cross over and come in and out from different departments. So we haven't, re- it hasn't really affected our, program really much at all in the fact that we've slipped back obviously I'm over here and um, you know sort of piloting the craft and we've got some great support over here as well but um, the rain has been frustrating Um, this is the third La Nina year weather-wise that we've had and talking to 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 clouds uh, Roger Batham you know it's it is very very unusual to get the type of rainfall that we are having through the, the the desert basically this time of year so it is frustrating but um you know that's life and we have to uh, you know be respectful of, of where we're at and um you know we've just got to keep playing on and hopefully you know get a, get an opportunity um at some point in the next uh, month or two has though the delays kind of allowed you to fine-tune a few things though and, and giving you a a better chance of not only breaking the record but maybe improving it to another level yeah look there's certainly you know lots of work that you can do you know in the shed and and we we've we have taken that opportunity you know once we have had a couple of delays here in even in the last sort of three weeks you know we've had a couple of showers that have come through and the water's moved around a little bit that has been here um, you know there's there's hundreds of things to do and even in your systems and your rigging set up and there's so many little things that you can make improvements on and it's no different than working on your dinghy in your in your, in your garage it's uh, you know if you can make your your, your boom vang better and your cunningham work better and your your trolley work better and it doesn't matter what it is if you can make gains um inside closed doors it, it always makes a difference when you get out on, on the water or in our case on the salt so um the guys have been great we've had some really good days of um of boat work and some good banter and um you know the, the atmosphere and the vibe over here is uh, is is really great and um, we're making some huge gains at the moment obviously as we get closer to the pointy end of, of pushing that 202.9 kilometre an hour mark, you know, things will get more difficult. There's absolutely no question that you know, it's an extremely tough thing to try and break. Um, your records, if they were easy, everyone would be breaking them 
all the time. Um, you know, they're not. They're they're extremely difficult. And you know, as we get closer to that two hundred kilometer an hour mark, you know, things will, will get pretty real. And um, you know, I'll be learning a lot. And um, you know, we'll be having. I'm sure there'll be some head scratching, but um, at the same time, hopefully, we can make some great gains. And with the group we've got, you know, I've got every confidence that we'll uh, we'll get there eventually. So I saw you achieved a speed of what was it, one fifty six kilometers an hour a few days ago. Yep. Has that given you more confidence? Have you even managed to improve on that since? Uh, no, look, that was our that was our last run that we did before the uh, the, the ceremony actually, when Nati Fatua and uh, the, the Gaula Rangers people um, blessed the craft here at Lake Gardner. The the speed that we got, you know, it was it, it felt like you were basically half throttle, um, if that's a simple way to put it. Um, the craft really only starts to get rumbling when you get over 150 kilometres an hour. The, the wing is very small um, compared to you know a normal boat. So, but because we're going through the air so quickly with that wing, as you get going faster and faster, it actually develops more and more power. So it comes to a point where you're actually wanting to reduce sail area. Um, it's only about um, roughly around 10 square metres of, of area. And over 200 kilometres an hour, you would, you would be ideally having less than 10 square metres, possibly even down to seven square metres of, of sail area at over 200 kilometres an hour. The problem is that you need to get to 200 kilometres an hour and above initially. So if you don't have the sail area, it's got to be extremely windy and you need a very, very, very long runway to get up to speed. So the designers... Um, you know, Guillaume Verdier has put a huge amount of time into the design um, of this. And he, we've discussed a lot about what sort of the right compromise is. And we sort of worked out where we'd be running. And we, we came up with the fact that, you know, we thought that seven kilometres was probably as big an area that we'd realistically be able to find. And so we designed the craft really around the location and, and the weight of the craft hopefully is an advantage over what crafts have gone previously and yeah we're hoping that that'll um that'll give us um enough speed to hopefully get there but yeah 150k an hour feels feels like you're uh you're going backwards compared to where you need to get to maybe feels backwards for you but uh might be a few others who disagree but anyway what sort of conditions do you kind of really need to achieve the best results yeah look i think 30 to 35 knots is really sort of what we're targeting wind speed wise that that gives us enough thrust that um, we can get the craft rumbling by itself you have to start from a standing start and obviously as i said the wing is very small so to get actually two and a half tons of mass rolling from a standing start um you know you need quite a bit of breeze so um hopefully when i sort of push the flap across on the tailplane that actually flies the wing um, and start sheeting it on. So I don't have a wing sheet or anything like that to control the wing. You're actually flying the wing like you'd fly an aeroplane um, vertically, basically. And so instead of horizontally, we're flying it vertically. So I pump the flap across on the tailplane that sheets the wing on. We get sort of rolling, we get up to speed, and then I'm basically using that tailplane flap to actually fly the wing and fly the control the power you're actually using that as a as a throttle basically and that um, control of your side force and your forward force is reacted by the the tires and and the grip of the tires and if you put too if you sheet on too much you get too much side force and you slip sideways and if you don't sheet on enough 
um, you don't get the forward thrust. So it's just balancing that forward thrust and the side load with the grip of the tyres and the balance of the craft that will hopefully, you know, get us fast enough. And if we get 35 to 38 knots, um, that would be awesome. Um, that would that would help the, the situation. But we're getting into realms of, you know, really, really large side forces. And um, that's not where we're 100% sure how much grip we'll be able to achieve. So if we get too much breeze, we'll, we'll struggle um, and probably just get blown sideways rather than getting getting pulled forward so it's um it's a delicate balance but yeah around sort of 30 to 35 knots would be the target at this point in time to break the record just just talk to me about the tires because it seems to me like that's kind of one of the most complex areas due to the fact you know you need the land yacht to grip the surface but also offer the least amount of rolling resistance can you kind of explain that a little bit more yeah, look, you're absolutely on the money with that, Michael. It really is a, a super delicate balance. And like, you know, foils on a, on a foiling boat, for example, we know that smaller foils, um, you know, create lower drag at higher speeds, but also you need to be able to take off as, as well. And you've got to be able to resist that, that side force. So we all change our foils on, on foiling boats for different conditions and, and we operate them differently. Um, same as a hull or a, a dagger board um, or, or a keel on a yacht stops you sliding sideways through the water. Um, we're just using tyres to do exactly the same job as what your centreboard would do um, on, on your dinghy. So we need, you know, huge amounts of grip at, at high speed. We, we have about 1.7 tonnes of side force um, that the wing produces when we're doing over 200 kilometres an hour, but only about 250 kilograms of forward thrust. So we've got a massive side component and only a small forward thrust, which is very, very much identical to how, how a, a sailboat works. We have a huge amount of side force, but only generate a very small amount of driving force. So on the, on the salt surface, um, the tyres themselves, absolutely, you want them to be as, as clean in rolling resistance as you possibly be, can. But if they're too clean in rolling resistance, they don't provide the grip to stop you sliding sideways. So the balance for us is actually coming up with tyre packages and the balance of the craft, both in the front tyre, the twin rear wheels, and also the side pod, to be able to balance the craft so we can transfer that massive side load if you like mostly through the rear wheels of the craft and so the rear wheels of the craft end up taking probably around about 85 to 90 percent of the side force of the wing and the front wheel does take a, a small component of side force but it's largely there to steer the craft so it can be a bit better in rolling resistance um, but the rear tires that we've got are um, quite big and wide there we're using 285 uh, millimeter tires on the back and we've got two of those in line at the rear and they're basically on the edge of grip the whole time and we're running at about a 10 degree slip angle um, which we've worked out is probably about the most efficient grip versus rolling resistance that we can we can run so we're actually sliding the craft down the track at about um, 10 degrees so it's like yeah doing a drift you know at over 200 kilometers an hour for, for kilometers basically you're, you're sliding sideways and controlling a big slide effectively um, being powered by the wind gosh so do you you know is it like a, a racing car and the tires wear out pretty quickly yeah, look, we, we are finding that we are sort of seeing quite a bit of wear on, on the tyres. Um, we're, we're cycling through 
different types of, of tyres. Um, we've, we've got sort of, uh, you know, slick tyres. We've got um, some different track tyres. We've got uh, wet tyres, um, different widths of tyres. And so we're actually learning a lot. And because there's no real information around the world on, you know, the type of tyre that we need to, to do what we do on the salt. There's a lot of information on, on tyres for vehicles that are, are, you know, going in a straight line and setting speed record attempts where they're putting power through the tyres and largely travelling in a straight line. There's quite a bit of information on that, but there's no real um, circuit racing tyres that are designed for specifically for salt. So we're sort of delving into areas and, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the, the racing industry and, speedway and, and track cars and got as much information as I possibly can on what types of tyres may work for the application that we're looking at doing. And we have quite a decent range of tyres, which we've been very fortunate to get hold of. Um, some at the right price, some we've had to pay for. Um, and it's really, really interesting to go through the different concepts. And you, you put one tyre on versus another on the back for example or you change the twin wheels at the back and the craft completely changes its handling characteristics and that's been really really interesting and like you would you know change a foil or you change a, a dagger board uh, or a keel on a yacht and you get some really different results we're finding exactly the same thing with changing the tires and getting that set up there so it's it's really really interesting challenge and obviously we've got suspension your angle caster tow a whole lot of things we can adjust with the tires as well and the wheels with the craft and get the, to get the fuselage lined up properly so it's it's an interesting challenge and something that's um taking a lot of us um including myself well out of our comfort zones in in what we need to learn so let's say you get the the tire technology right you get the right wind conditions right salt conditions you know what do you you mentioned 250 k's an hour earlier is is that what you're aiming for you know what do you think you're capable of achieving yeah look i think the craft is is absolutely capable of achieving 250 kilometers an hour in actual fact i think it's it's probably um able to achieve more than that to be honest in in the simulator i've i've had runs that have been faster than 250 kilometers an hour but it's very difficult to get that and you can crash quite a few times in the simulator um but you don't want to crash once <laughs> with this thing um trying to get there so it's um it look i think anywhere between the current record and 250 kilometers an hour would be would be exceptional and you know i think obviously we want to raise the bar as high as we possibly can you know I, I won't be satisfied if we only just break the record or that's not that's not what i'm here for i'm here to challenge myself and i'm here to challenge uh the rest of the guys around me and and the team and the craft to um to push to levels that are um you know have never been done before i, I want to be i want to be you know uh, a gray old man uh in my 80s or 90s hopefully and, and still have that record intact so how is the speed actually taken? Is it like a top speed or is it an average speed over a certain time or distance? Yeah, look, it's, a, it's an average speed, um, basically of, of, of two seconds. It, it's actually, I, I've sort of been saying it's a three second average top speed, but it's taken from a GPS from sort of the zero point through to the end of the two seconds. So if you, I, I've just been calling it a three second average top speed and Basically, that's done by a GPS system that's on board the yacht. So we have a uh, we have a judge, one coming from Perth and another from Sydney, and they'll be they have to be present, or one of them has to be present for um, that that 
result to be ratified and we use a, a GPS system. Um, it's a, a Leica GPS system that's basically a um, sort of a survey grade. It, it's actually probably 20 times um, over the top of what it actually needs to be, but we, we want to sort of make sure that we're absolutely as accurate, accurate as we can be. We, we've had some runs the other day that were, were down to accuracy of four and a half millimetres um, at 150 kilometres an hour. Um, so pretty precision equipment and we have a the roving antenna is actually the the gps unit that um sits on the craft itself and we have a base station antenna which actually is fixed and and basically the gps system talks to its, each other and that plots your location but it also plots your speed extremely accurately and that's what we've used it which has been ratified by the the FISLI, the the governing body of the land sailing association in europe and um yeah so we're, we're very very accurate with our speed and i basically turn the system on um you do your run you turn the system off you pull the data card out and that goes into the computer and the judges um you know it's, uh, it gets sorted out with the software side and the um the judges then ratify the result and they they apply to fisley to to ratify that and then once that's done you you hopefully have the record so it's definitely a process um but it's a process that has to be done and it's um very accurate and make sure that everything's under control and above board so let's say you're successful you know what do you get other than the satisfaction of breaking the record is it you know a guinness book of records entry is it a a big song and dance somewhere Hopefully my 11-year-old daughter will give me a nice nice elephant stamp that I can put on the fridge and, and that'll be pretty much what it'll be. It, it's, it's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a personal quest, but it's also a, a team quest to, to be, you know, the fastest wind-powered team uh, and the fastest wind-powered, you know, human uh, on the planet. So that's, that's really what, what it is for me. It's been something I've wanted to do since I was a little kid. And to have the opportunity to do it and have the support of Emirates Team New Zealand and, and the wider group um, is is incredible. And it, it really is something for everybody. It's, it's not just for myself. I think, um, you know, the, everybody's got on board with it and it's, uh, it's a great challenge. And it's something that, um, you know, we've, we all love our sailing and we've all been powered by the wind, you know, for, for, for most of our lives. And for me personally, it's just something that I've always wondered, you know, how fast can you go? purely being powered by the wind and that's something for me that I've wanted to do and it sort of drop has driven me you know pretty much my whole sailing career is is you know how fast can you go you know not only in racing and, and racing boats but you know how far can you go with um with where we're going so hopefully I'll be able to push to limits that um have never been done before and then I might be able to be satisfied with uh with with my sailing career um so that that's the why um, how does it get to the how? You know, how did this all come about? Because you can have a vision or a dream or a goal, an ambition, but how do you get other people to come along for the ride with you? Yeah, look, it, that's a great question. I, I think, oh, for a start, I think back in sort of about 2005, 2006, um, I was actually, it was before the Beijing Olympics and I'd been dreaming about, um, doing a solar-powered, wind-powered land yacht challenge from Perth to Melbourne and then up to Sydney in sort of as a you know sort of uh, green energy vehicle back then um, using using the wind and, and the sun to to sort of uh, you know promote uh, greener technologies and 
with um, you know the sort of the, the finalisation of the the Beijing Olympics, um, I then got an offer an offer or an opportunity to, um, to 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 be involved with the America's Cup with the big trimaran um, racing against uh, the the Swiss Alinghi catamaran and. I was just about to pull the trigger on sort of getting uh, that sort of going and um, put that on the back burner. And for the last um, 14 years, I've been involved with the America's Cup, which has been absolutely incredible and, and amazing. And the the the, um, you know, the highs and lows and ups and downs of all that have been absolutely incredible. But that sort of burning desire with this land yachting program and, and going fast and everything since I was a, a little kid with that side of things has, has been something that's sort of been itching and burning at me for quite a while now and about six months before the last america's cup it was about october i think and we, we raced in march i floated the idea with um you know with with grant dalton and and a few of our engineers and and designers sort of saying look you know if we were to be successful do you think there'd be any interest in in sort of taking on a project like this and you know do you think the team would, would like to be involved and Everyone I sort of spoke to was like, wow, that's a cool idea. And yeah, look, you know, we'll see how we go. And Daltz was, you know, was he's a, he's a bit of a, a speed freak as well. And I think, you know, he sort of said, well, look, if, you know, obviously we've got to be successful at the America's Cup. And, and for me at the time, first and foremost, we wanted to be 100% successful in defending the America's Cup in, in Auckland. And, and, you know, in the end, we did that um, as a team. Um, we did that extremely well, and, and that was absolutely fantastic. And it was sort of the, the post-Cup um, uh, sort of thoughts, like you need a few weeks to sort of collect your thoughts, you sort of catch up with your family and friends. And um, we basically sat down about uh, six weeks later and, and sort of did a bit of a feasibility study. And, you know, I'd sort of been just dreaming about this for, for a long, long time. And did the feasibility study, um, managed to sort of put all the pieces of the puzzle together and, and finally sort of pulled the trigger on doing it in sort of May um, after the Cup. And, you know, obviously that sort of initiated a process of, you know, design and what do we need and who do we need and what personnel can do it. And it sort of started off this whole chain of events. And, you know, that's really culminated in exactly where we are now out here at Lake Gairdner. So I've had great support from the wider team and... Um, and it's been it's been you know very very humbling to um, to have that support uh, not only through uh, this project but um, you know to be part of Emirates Team New Zealand over the last twelve years we've developed some fantastic relationships um, you know and and really those relationships I think have um, shone through and and everybody that's been involved with this project has um, you know been thoroughly enjoying it and I think it's a, it's a great challenge for everyone and we're, we're having fun so far I just hope it can end up all uh, all as well as we hope it can so what sort of crossover then is there for the work that the team are doing on the next America's Cup you know are there things that you've learned from this project that will will apply to to the to yachting side of things yeah, look, there's there's different aspects I think of this program that definitely um, you know cross over into the into the cup side of things. Um, I think, like certainly, tire technology is not super relevant for um, you know for, for for moving forward within next America's Cup, but reaching out to different you know machine shops and industries and meeting new people and different companies that can produce parts and equipment and technology um, absolutely do cross over, and I think that's probably been one of the biggest eye-openers in doing this project is actually delving into uh, other companies and talking to different people in different industries that um, have knowledge 
in different areas that we haven't um, sort of utilised before in the America's Cup world. So um, while some of the technology of the craft, you know, is is relevant, I'd say the vast majority of, of what we've actually discovered is sort of the, the personal relationships and also, um, you know, coming across companies and technology that have actually, um, you know, really been great for this project, but also potentially really fantastic for um, for some of the America's Cup projects as we move forward. Have there been any sort of surprises in the things that you've learned? Um, yeah, look, there, there has been. There, there's been some things that I thought would be, you know, relatively easy to sort of do um, that have been extremely difficult. And there's been some things that I thought would be extremely difficult that are actually a bit more easy than I thought they would be. So there's certainly been a really mixed bag of, um, of, of learning and um, it's a great, it's a really great challenge. I mean, it can be extremely frustrating at times, but also um, extremely exciting and, and really cool at, at the same time. So it's a really mixed bag of emotions, which is the case for you know going into any sort of big event if you like we have that with the america's cup you have the highs and the lows you capsize you break things you push the limits um you win races you know it's a real emotional roller coaster and this is no different to 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 that type of environment it's just we're doing it in a in a really remote location with a really small group of dedicated people and the highs and lows are the same you know we we have the struggles we have the flies, we have the dust. Um, it's just a different environment and a different set of challenges. But one thing is with Emirates Team New Zealand is that the team is always up for big challenges and a changing environment suits the team. And the people around me at the moment are absolutely fizzing on the new challenge. And the guys that I have here with me, um, you know, this is very much out of their comfort zone coming over to a location like this. There's snakes and spiders and pretty much everything that can eat you, which we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And it's a different environment. And that's, um, it's a great challenge. And, and, it, and it is what makes um, this type of event so special. And hopefully, um, you know, we can pass that on to the to the rest of the group and and uh, you know showcase what we're doing here on the world stage you know for New Zealand so it's a it's a it's a proud uh, proud proud thing to be involved with some might say that those snakes and spiders have been the most difficult thing to overcome but for you what has been the most difficult aspect of it so far yeah look i think the the most difficult aspect of things so far i think is has probably been you know the weather and i think that I always knew that, you know, the weather was going to play, you know, it does play the main part in, in getting the record really at the end of the day because, you know, I have had every confidence that we'll have a, a good craft and I'm hoping, you know, my skill level will be high enough that I can pilot the craft where it needs to go. Um, but really the weather has been the, the biggest challenge and will probably remain as the biggest challenge as we move forwards because, it, it is, you know, you can't control it. You just have to be part of it. And that's something that with our sailing over the years, um, you know, you come to respect and, and accept. And as you go through all your training with your, with your sailing, whether it be on the water or on the salt, um, you know, you have to accept what you get and, you know, you have to get the best out of those conditions. So um, being in tune with the weather and with Mother Nature is, is something that, you know, is, is quite spiritual for, for a lot of people. And if you can get, into the mode of where you're accepting of what's being given to you, you'll um, you'll do very well. So I saw um, recently you spent some time in a race car 
on the track at Hampton Downs and as being a self-confessed speed freak I'm sure that was a particularly cool experience but you know what was the thinking behind that and how can that help you in this speed uh, attempt? Yeah, look, that was um, a fantastic day, although it was, um, you know, probably from the outside looked like it was just a hoon around the racetrack. Underneath that was actually some really good lessons that came out of that. And having Matt Gibson as a the sort of the driving instructor and driving coach and as an ex-racing driver, he was able to explain things to me in a coaching sense, like you would have a sailing coach, that um, it's very difficult to teach technique and and feel um, with a lot of aspects and for him to be able to explain to me how you actually felt the car through the seat um, how you felt the car through the steering wheel and the the things that you'd be looking for in anticipation of how things would be moving around underneath you was really really great and and how hard you actually strapped yourself into the seat was a real eye-opener for me like the the, like he would the, the seat belts that those guys tighten themselves into you know they really pull themselves extremely tightly into the seat and he said the reason we do that is mainly for the fact that you can feel the car so much better through your backside and, and the rest of your body and for me that was well I was like wow okay well you know so I've been really sort of working hard on my seat positioning and getting myself strapped into the craft really tightly so you can feel every little slip every little movement there's no sponginess in that you're just completely locked into it and you become one with the car or with the craft and some of those lessons of steering techniques and and what you're anticipating and feeling um, have been very valuable so out of that experience I've actually learnt a lot and um, the first few runs I've I've done here I've, I've definitely used those skills to, to certainly help me with you know the drifting of the car um, being on the edge of grip it's um, it's been a great benefit so um, yeah I'm learning lots all the time and it's definitely something different than I've ever really done before but um, you know you've got to use all your skills that you've learnt from from your childhood through into your teenage years into your adult life and really for me sort of the the you know the aspect of flying the wing is very similar to flying model airplanes and planes over the years um you know we're, we're driving uh steering the craft with a steering wheel so it's very similar to sort of steering a car or being on a motorbike and being on the edge of grip is, is the same as foiling or uh, you know being on the edge of grip in a car or, or a bike as well so a whole lot of attributes um all rolled into one package with this craft in horonuku and it's um it's a very special boat a uh, very special craft and it's um something that really uses all your skills that you've learned over your whole life to uh, to pilot it quickly so is this craft more like a race car or more akin to a yacht uh, that's a great question. Um, it is, I would say, a massive blend of flying, sailing, and driving. That would be my. I'd say that's the. It's it's probably got a third of each, and you've got to be on top of your game with, with all of them. Um, essentially, you're sailing, um, but you're also driving, and you're also flying because you're flying the wing, and you're pretty much flying across the surface. So, it's. Um, it's a it's a buzz. I, I won't I won't lie. It's a it's a great buzz when you strap yourself in and and you're looking just over the top of the dashboard at the at the white horizon in front of you. It's um you know it is a it is a pretty big buzz knowing that you're um you know you're purely powered just by by the wind and and you're going to be doing speeds hopefully in excess of uh, two hundred kilometres an hour in the near future. Now you've said previously it will be the safest thing that you'll ever sail in your life. Why is that? 
Well, it's the first boat that I've ever had a five-point racing harness in. That's for, that's for sure. It would have been good to uh, to have uh, be strapped into the America's Cup boats a few times when we were testing, and you'd you'd sort of uh, go down the mine and uh, crash into things. But for me, it it really is super safe. Where the cockpit is is designed to sort of Formula One standards. It's a monocoque. Uh, shell that the guys at Amiga Street have done an exceptionally good job of, of building. Not only the cockpit, but the whole craft is is extremely well built. And that cockpit itself has been dropped down into the fuselage and bonded in. Uh, the racing harness is, um, is, a, is a Formula One approved racing harness. And basically everything in the craft is, is designed around safety um, and performance as well. So because weight um, wasn't a, a huge issue for us with this particular build. Um, we've been able to make the craft very strong and um, I feel extremely safe in it. It really does feel like you can, you can push hard and that you're not going to be uh, in, in any danger. There's always a risk in, in pushing boundaries um, you know, and pushing limits and I accept those risks and I always have. I've always pushed myself to, to limit sometimes you know, over and above where they, they should have been pushed, but that's that's who I am and that, that's how I operate. And I've always felt learning where the edge is um, is very important in life. And if you don't challenge yourself, um, you know, you, you're simply existing, you're, you're not living. So is there anything that can possibly go wrong in terms of safety? You know, is it a blown tyre or something like that? Yeah, look, I think in any racing environment, you know, a blown tyre or, or, or a breakage is always unfortunate and sometimes that can cause a, a spin or, or, or a crash. But the beauty about this location we're in, Michael, is that, that we don't have any trees or other cars or, or a wall to run into. You know, we can we can sail around for kilometres and, and there's just open space. So I feel very, very comfortable. You know, there's no waves to hit. There's, you know, it's just... It's just you and the craft and, and look, at the end of the day, you know, there, there's always a risk with things, but that's why I sort of say this this location for me and, and what we're doing and the confidence that I have in the, the design and the construction, you know, of the craft that the guys have done, you know, I feel extremely confident as I do in any of the America's Cup class boats that I've been on that the team have, have put together. You, you trust the designers and engineers and that relationship that you have and that you build over years is, is what you rely on to um, put yourself in the right frame of mind where you, you're comfortable, you know, pushing to, to levels that haven't been pushed before. So what is it like to, to sail, if that's the, the right term? Um, you know, do you have things like G-forces? You know, how comfortable is it inside the cockpit? Um, it's very uncomfortable. It's very hot and it's very uh, shaky and vibrating. So it's um, it definitely, from the outside, it looks quite smooth, but inside it's really, really rough. And because we're basically very, very stiff with the craft and we're running really, really stiff suspension, we've got suspension on all, all three corners of the craft on every wheel. Um, we've, we're generally running the dampers pretty hard because um, we're finding that that's actually better for handling. Um, it's very noisy inside is probably the, the one that would probably shock most people. It's like being on the inside of a, of a drum, basically, because it's, um, it's just a big hollow tube and the, all, every noise that gets transferred from the, from the wheels, um, you know, and the, and the pot arm actually ends up coming straight into the cockpit. So I run um, sort of ear earpieces for communications, um, but it still gets extremely noisy and really, really vibrating. The salt surfaces often 
not perfectly smooth. There's a lot of imperfections in the salt because it's a natural surface, which it has to be as as part of the rule. We, um, yeah, it's it's not the most pleasant ride, but um, you know, I'm not in there all day, so um, you know, hopefully I can deal with that and um, you know, uh, get get the job done and 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 get out of it so we can um, you know, move forwards. And what's it like inside? Is it like full of heaps of gadgets telling you what's going on? Uh, I've got a definitely got a, a screen or a dashboard that I look at that tells me my flap angle, wing angle, speed over ground, apparent wind angle. Um, we're running a, a pedo tube, which is actually a, like on an aircraft would actually that runs out the front of the counterbalance, which actually gives me wind information and, and apparent wind angles and speed, which has been fantastic. I also have a pod load sensor, which is basically like um, a, sort of a, a, a load bar graph, basically, that when the pod is getting close to coming off the ground, um, you know, the bar graph goes up and when it's taking more load, the bar graph goes down. So I'm largely basing my trimming, if you like, of the wing off that, that pod load. We've got about 850 kilograms as a sort of standard mass that we load up the pod um, out there, which is stopping us rolling over. And to get that pod basically just at the surface or just off the surface is ideally what we'll be setting the craft up for. Um, I've got a couple of hydraulic levers that I can um, dictate which way I pump the flap of the wing and two foot pedals, the left one being the brake, which hopefully we won't be needing too much over here compared to what we used in Fenilpai. And the right pedal is actually a, a pump pedal, which I actually pump the flap on. And I've got a, a sort of a paddle shift lever that I can actually ease the flap under aero loads. Um, when we're up to speed so um, there's a few little things going on there but it's certainly um, I'd say fairly simple compared to um, you know what one of the new uh, Toyota Land Cruisers are for example inside there's more buttons in there that you can poke a stick at but um, you know once you get to learn all the buttons it's it's extremely good and it's the same in the land yacht once you get to learn um, you know where everything's at and you get comfortable with it it's um, it's just like driving a car or, or sailing your boat you sort of do it without thinking about it. And what can you see? You know, can you look up and have a look at the wing? Can you see all the major exterior components, for example? Yeah, look, I can I can look up and see the just the counterbalance, um, the front of the counterbalance of the wing. If I tip my head back, um, if I turn my head to the side, I can just see the pod wheel on the ground. Looking forwards, so I'm I'm only just able to see just over the screen and basically when the canopy's shut it's it's about five millimeters um off the top of my helmet so i'm very very low obviously the frontal uh projected area of the craft we want to keep as as low and as streamlined as we can so when i'm actually down in my cockpit i can't actually see too much forward so i can just see the horizon and i'm basically basing my trajectory that I'm steering off um, off the numbers, but also we're putting we're discovering that sort of having a vehicle um, at about the midpoint of that seven kilometre mark, so about three three and a half kilometres down the track, having a vehicle with its headlights on high beam facing back towards me is a great um, marker on the horizon that I can actually base my true wind angle off when I start accelerating. So um, yeah, that's something that we're, we're learning because basically, you know, being so close to the salt surface, you actually, you, you, you can't see the end of the, the, the track because it's over the horizon. So um, we need some markers and some flags along the way to uh, to guide you and also you're sailing off the numbers. So it's, um, yeah, a new challenge and we're, we're learning new things all the time. And um, yeah, having, having certainly having the lights facing towards you is, um, is, is, 
you know, why we run our headlights for safety reasons on our cars when the weather's not good because it helps you see other vehicles. So it's um that's a that's a great addition to what we're learning. Sounds to me a bit like you're flying blind. <laughs> well, if you don't have your sunglasses on, you uh, you definitely your eyes burn pretty pretty quick and you know certainly doing an interview or something with your sunglasses off is um super bright um the sun here is basically just reflects massively off the salt surface so you, you do get really sunburnt really quickly and my top lip at the moment where normally you get burned on your bottom lip it's actually my top lip that's copping it at the moment which is first time in my life i've been getting you know probably a bit like what people in the snow get is almost sort of you get a bit of snow blindness going on with just how bright it is so my eyes and everyone's eyes i think at the moment are um you know we're struggling a little bit just on those bright days out on the salt you know getting set up but um we're all running you know heaps of sunscreen and hats and um you know certainly sunglasses are an absolute must it's um it's really really bright out here for sure now we've mentioned the the current speed 202.9 kilometers an hour which was set in 2009 by a guy called richard jenkins who got his uh, custom-built land yacht up to that speed how much sort of research have you done on what he was able to achieve? Yeah, look, we've you know looked at all the history over the years of of what craft and what people you know became you know came before us, and and you you look at the development as you do through sailing. It's really no different. Um, you know, where you look back at the history of, of of yachting and and land yachting has actually been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. They, the kings and queens um, back in the day, um, certainly out in the, the, the Middle Eastern countries, um, often got transported by land yacht, by these big chariots with, with big sails that would go across the desert. And, you know, when you sort of start delving into some of that history, you're like, whoa, this is actually, you know, really incredible what, what craft were built, you know, way, way back, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And really looking at Richard's craft, um, you know, it, it does share some similarities absolutely with ours. We, we went through a huge a lot, uh, amount of sort of design ideas and criteria. And where Richard got to with his craft was ultimately a refinement of all the craft that went before him. So we're basically continuing on, you know, that refinement process um, with 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 Horonuku and um, you know we've learnt a lot of things um, through you know the VPP and the design side of things and the aero simulations and hopefully the the design that, that we've been able to come up with is sort of a you know a next gen next level push of the boundaries um, both in sort of structure aerodynamics um, and performance you know with what we're doing um, over what Richard did with his craft and there's absolutely no denying that Richard you know did a, a absolutely brilliant job with what with what he did you know he he set the bar extremely high and that that record is going to be extremely difficult to beat you know he he had a lot of experience um and he did a lot of trial and error he he broke a lot of things he fixed a lot of things he spent you know hundreds of hours um, you know, sailing and, and developing and getting faster and faster over his time. So, um, you know, absolutely hats off to him to, to what he achieved and, and what, it, you know, the record that, that, that he set because it, it's not an easy one to do. Um, and previously to that, the, you know, the Iron Duck, um, you know, uh, back in 1999, you know, at 187 kilometres an hour back in 1999, you're thinking, wow, that's pretty fast. And for me to only be at 100 and 
155, 156, 158 kilometres an hour at the moment and feeling what I'm feeling, I'm like, wow, these guys were really sending it, you know, and they had some pretty big kahunas to uh, to push as hard as they did. And, um, you know, that's, that's the game that we're in and um, we're just hoping that with what we've learned um, and what the team's developed that we've been able to sort of take the learnings of all those that have gone before us like we do with the America's Cup side of things uh, and yacht design and, and actually take that to the next level. And I think that's something that Emirates Team New Zealand and the wider group do extremely well and um, that's why I think the, you know, the, the program works so well. So it was a project that consumed Jenkins because it took him two months of every year for about 10 years to break that record. How obsessive is something like this? Uh, it can be extremely obsessive. And I have probably been, you know, for the last 18 months or, or more, really since the last, you know, the finishing of the last race of the America's Cup in March um, last year, I think I've probably been obsessed 100% with, with, with this project. And I, and I am 100% obsessed with it now, probably 110% obsessed with it. And that's how I operate. I, I, if I get my head into something, I, I can't let up and I can't stop until you, you achieve what you need to achieve. And that's certainly been, you know, the America's Cup side of things over the years. You, you get into it and you, you, you become obsessed and, you know, it becomes quite a, a selfish quest in, in some ways. Um, it's hard on your families and it's hard on, on those around you, but hopefully the, the, the passion that you have to try and do things that, you know, not everybody, you know, can do. Uh, potentially, you know, brings enough people with you that, um, you know, makes it a, a, a cool thing to do. And, um, yeah, I'm absolutely obsessed. And I think um, Richard probably was. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people that are in our sport, you know, get pretty obsessed as well. So I don't think I'm alone by any stretch of the imagination. I just want to read a quote from him because he said, and I quote, half the challenge is technical, having to create a more efficient vehicle than the previous record holder. Then the rest is luck being in the right place at the right time to get the perfect conditions with the right people watching. I must have been on record standby at some remote location around the world for at least two months of every year for the past 10 years. Do you worry that you might not get lucky? You know, do, have you contemplated that you might not be successful? Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you think about that often. You think, you know, what if, what if this, what if that, you know, what contingencies do I have? What do I need to do? Um, I think Richard's dead right, and I think the the 50%, which is having the right craft um, and the right setup, I, I, I feel very confident that that I have that in place, and that's probably half the equation that I feel that I, I don't have to worry about so much because I've got a great team around me and a great group of guys that have, you know, have put a huge amount of effort into that side. So that side, I feel that, you know, we're in great shape and possibly a better shape than what Richard was when he was doing his attempt, um, which I'm very fortunate for. The, the luck side of things is largely the weather and, and that is absolutely a huge component of, of, of these record attempts and I think that's the bit that is the unknown but which is also the exciting bit as well because when you're watching the weather systems shaping up you know across in the Indian Ocean and coming across and you're talking to clouds uh, about you know the potential systems that are coming and you're talking to the guys there's an air of excitement it might be 10 days away that you're looking at something building it's like looking at a swell map if you're wanting to be a big wave surfer you know you don't get those big waves every week you know you might not get them once a year but if you get the conditions on the day when it counts then 
that's when records can be broken and that's sort of the excitement of the challenge. Um, we're here at the windiest part of the year. Um, you know, obviously the rain events that we've had and this La Nina program that we're seeing at the moment is, is extremely frustrating, but it's all part of the game. It, it, you know, we, we will break this record when Mother Nature provides us the gift to do it and we will make sure that we've got the right people there watching when we do it. Would the team realistically schedule a second attempt if you're not successful this time around? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I'd, I'd have to sort of run that past the, uh, the the powers that be to sort of see what, what the future holds. Um, I haven't really thought too much about post-December or mid-December when, you know, when we'd have to pack everything up. Um, I have thought about what we'd have to do down the track, but um, at this point in time, I'm, I'm just going to cross that bridge when we, when we get to it because there's nothing I can do about it right now except for focus 100% on where we are. And, um, you know, you can think about the future past, uh, you know, where we are now, but um, I'm just going to fully focus on where we are at the moment and then worry about if we don't break the record, then worry about what the future holds after that. So you talked about this being kind of a lifelong dream of yours. Have you got any other records or uh, projects um, up your sleeve, other things floating around that we might see in the future? Uh, 100%. Uh, there's definitely other projects that I'd like to do down down the track, but um, we'll save that for, a, uh, for another podcast, Michael, when we're talking about how fast we've just been recently. I look forward to that. And um, things seem to be gaining momentum back here with the America's Cup campaign, highlighted by the, um, the recent launch of the AC40 that's going to be used for the AC... The Women's America's Cup and the Youth America's Cup. Have you had a bit of FOMO watching the footage of the boat in action? Oh, look, it's a it's a absolutely fantastic little boat. And being over there a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, uh, you know, seeing the guys, you know, sailing the boat around, it's um it's a cool little boat, you know, and to see the sort of next generation of the technology that sort of spun out of the um you know, the last America's Cup with the AC-75s to see that sort of technology flowing down into, you know, more of a sort of production type boat, if you like, um, you know, has been excellent and, and absolutely, you know, hats off and full credit to, to the design and engineering team and the build team too, um, you know, with those boats. They're, they're basically, you know, the Formula One of, uh, of sailing really and, um, you know, to have the opportunity as a as a as a youth um to to be able to jump on a boat like that i would have been you know absolutely blown away and it would have been something that i would have actually given anything to to get on a boat like that as a as a as a young guy um to have a sail on something like that it's it's incredible how quickly the the technology has moved forward and, and the performance and ease of operation now compared to what what it was a few years ago is is unbelievable so no the boats are super cool and um yeah hopefully it's at some point down the track i'll uh, i'll get to put uh put a helmet on and uh, have a sailing one if i'm lucky yeah well you've got your own super cool kind of uh, craft to to go fast in right now and look we wish you all the best with this record attempt um whenever that may be uh, hopefully the weather gods are, are smiling on you um so we'll certainly be watching with interest to see how that unfolds um as all guests get asked, I'm just uh, keen to get your worst wipeout ever. Now, obviously, having been on the show before, you've given us a story about uh, a particular tasty uh, capsize at the, I think it was uh, in a tornado in 2006, 2007. But uh, 
What's your next story? Have you got one uh, involving the land yacht? Uh, fortunately, at the moment, I haven't got anything that's uh, remotely close to being a huge wipeout in the land yacht, so I'm very pleased to, <laughs> to not have that one off the top of my list at the moment. But, um, look, probably uh, a sailboarding accident was probably one of the worst that I've had where I was wave sailing um, down in Tasmania uh, a few years ago and was sailing in some big southern ocean waves and mucked up uh, mucked up a bit of a turn at the bottom of a wave and um, yeah basically went over the over the falls on a pretty big wave um, fully connected to all my gear and um, yeah that was uh, that was probably one of the biggest go downs I've <laughs> I've had and um, yeah the the 250 meter swim for my for my gear after that um, you know after you've had the wind knocked out of you was uh, was definitely a um, a bit of a you know a, a bit of a moment that you sort of think yep okay got to got to respect the ocean uh, got to respect mother nature and we are just so insignificant when it comes to uh, you know what's happening out there so that to me is probably one of the I've got a lot to choose from Michael but that one was certainly one that um, when you mentioned a while ago I thought that's probably a good one to uh, to bring out because it's um you know it wasn't in a, a racing environment it was just in a pure environment where you're out there just competing against yourself and challenging yourself and um you know sometimes mother nature will smack you around the head a little bit but you've got to listen and, and you've got to have respect and that's certainly something that we have here at lake gardner is, is absolutely full respect for uh, for mother nature yeah it sounds like um a reminder of who's in control um, at points like that isn't it it is absolutely Hey, all the best. Um, look, I really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating to sort of unpack this record attempt. And uh, as I say, we're uh, certainly going to be following that with uh, close interest over the next few weeks. So thanks again for joining us on Broadreach Radio. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Glenn Ashby is one of the best in the business, and I think his passion for the Land Speed Project comes through in this podcast. We certainly wish him and the team well over the next few weeks. In the meantime, I hope everyone's enjoying getting out on the water as we gear up for another cracking summer in New Zealand. Take care. <laughs>